Join me in prayer for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. God the Father, help us to hear the call of Christ the King and to follow in his service, for he reigns forever with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, one glory. Amen. Our scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 15 to 19. The Gospel of the Lord. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. What does Jesus want us to learn this morning? We're going to talk about ministers. Some of you have been burned by ministers. Some of you have scars that are lasting well into adulthood because of experiences that ministers of the gospel caused you to undergo. Or maybe it wasn't technically ordained clergy. Maybe it was that lady who seemed to understand you so well who had a word for the, from the Lord for you when you were 17 that scarred you for life. Maybe it's the fact that you saw people ministering the name of Christ for impure motives or their lives said something very different from what their words said on Sunday. We're going to talk about ministers, and not just ordained clergy, because God calls all of us to represent him, to serve other people, to minister to other people. What model does Scripture give us? We're going to look at the example of the Apostle Paul from Galatians chapter 4 as he uh, speaks to uh, some Christians who, who have made something of a shipwreck of their lives by turning away from the radicality of God's grace to a performance-based treadmill. It's Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 12 through 20, if you'd follow along, this is the word of Christ. Paul says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial for you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if, if, as if, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all of your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people, that is these legalistic teachers, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, and not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. What do we see here? We see the minister that you need we see the minister that you need to be, and we see in Jesus the minister that you already have. 
first thing, the ministers you need. This applies to all of us because we're all called to invest our lives in other people. It applies not just to ordained clergy, but to every believer who has Christ as, as Savior because all of us are called to invest in other people spiritually, both within the community of the faith and beyond to our city and our, our world. You know, if, if you, uh, um, if you don't find yourself in a position of investing spiritually in other people, then there's probably something wrong with you. Maybe it's that you're new here, you're new in the faith, or maybe it's that you're not capable of actually aching for other people. It may be that you're still too self-absorbed and haven't really gotten the gospel yourself, and so you're too emotionally immature to be able to invest in other people's lives and actively love them. And if that's you, friends, you are absolutely in the right place because we've all been there at some point. A lot of us are still there, and there are people here who can invest invest in you spiritually so that you can grow, so that you can learn a greater freedom and regain that joy that comes when the gospel gets deeply inside of you. But but God's called all of us to pour our lives into other people and to actually learn to ache for them, to learn to long for them with the longing that we hear in Paul's words toward the churches in Galatia. And in this passage, we see a picture of the ministers, plural, that all of us need. We see it when Paul says in verse 12, he says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. There are two sides of this. Uh, a minister is somebody who, who becomes like you. That's incredible empathy, uh, entering into your world on your terms, not on their terms. And, and yet also somebody who can present themselves as, as somebody to be emulated, who can challenge you saying, become like me. First part who became like you, he says, I became like you. You hear the, the incredible empathy. Paul became a Gentile, even though he was a Jew, in order to reach these Gentile Christians. It's, it's, it's because Christian ministry must be flexible. It's, it's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, he says, I'm free and I belong to no man, but I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, he says, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I'm not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, meaning unfamiliar with Scripture, he says, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. He says, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I became all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some, and I do this all for the sake of the gospel. You can hear him wanting to enter in to the lives, the culture, the world, the experience, the pain, the suffering of other people to become like them. Incredible flexibility, incredible empathy. Uh, he's inflexible with the gospel, but he's incredibly flexible with everything else. Now, this isn't Paul, you know, being manipulative and, and, and changing his message depending on his audience, but it is him changing how he presents his message. You know, have you ever wondered why we got four gospels? It's not so that you can try to compare and figure out which one's right, and which one's wrong. It's because they have different audiences. You know, you take Matthew's gospel. And it was written to Jewish Christians in order to present Christ to people in the Jewish community. And so it's interacting with the Hebrew scriptures on every single page, what, are, what we call our Old Testament. 
in, in the Christian church. And, and he's talking about, you know, specific instances of, of, of Jerusalem and Palestinian geography and cultural things that, and, and history that only a Jewish reader would understand. Even changing the way he talks about God. He doesn't talk about the kingdom of God, but kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it was written for a Jewish audience. But you look at Luke's gospel and it's really very, very different. Same message. But the details that were chosen historically, the, the, the details that were included in forming the narrative of Luke's gospel is really quite different because Luke was written to a Greek audience completely unfamiliar with the Bible, completely unfamiliar with Palestinian geography, for which debates between, you know, Rabbi Hillel and, and Shammai are, are completely irrelevant. And then you look at Mark's gospel written for a Roman audience, and it just focuses on, on the actions of Jesus, which would, would resonate within a Roman cultural context. It's, it's what Paul does throughout his ministry, shifting how he does it, being incredibly flexible in order to be understood by all. Because he wants to show incredible empathy by entering into your experience. This is the, this is the kind of minister that you need in your life. The kind of people that you need speaking into your life and helping shape you. People who don't sweat the details because they're, they're focused on the gospel and everything else is flexible. You know, I've been a Presbyterian for, gosh, long time. Uh, 1992. Yeah, since then. Um, and I could list for you the last 15 years or so of scandal of the year club in the Presbyterian Church in America. Every single year, there's some hobby horse that somebody has, and it's all over the blogs, and it's all over the websites, and it's all over FM radio, and it's people tearing their hair out and weeping and crying and gnashing teeth because uh, we let women read the Bible in church, or because we have disagreements over how old the earth is, or we have disagreements over whether or not we should have deaconesses, or over exactly which charismatic gifts may have disappeared or may not have, or over whether it is or is not acceptable to dip the communion bread into the communion wine, or whether that is an abomination of God, and I am not making this up. Conflicts over what term in the English language a Christian might use to describe his or her sexual orientation. Conflicts over whether the days of creation in Genesis are literal or figural. Conflicts over whether it's even okay to acknowledge a historical legacy of racism. You know, and, and the commonality every single year, it's the same people. Whatever the scandal is, and I'm not naming names, but whatever the big shameful scandal is that tears the world apart, the commonality is this. The people with the pitchforks and the tiki torches that are ready to burn the church down over this stuff are consistently the people for which the gospel is not at the center of their ministry, but rather the periphery. The gospel is always there, but it's always on the side. When I look at Christians who get the gospel on a deep level, they know they are the most shameful person in the room, the biggest sinner in the room, and Jesus loves me completely. When I see people like that, those are ministers who get the gospel and they don't sweat the details because Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing the inerrant, infallible, and perspicacious and sufficient word of God to us, explains to us the dynamic here when he says, I became like you, become like me. When he says, I'm going to be a Jew for the Jews and I'm going to be a Gentile for the Gentiles. And I'm going to be weak for the weak. 
That's why we have four Gospels. Because the Gospel cannot change. The Gospel is fixed. The Gospel of Jesus is non-negotiable. And pretty much everything else other than the Gospel and its outworking in lives of faithful obedience is flexible. That's Gospel ministry. Paul says, I became like you. And yet there's the other side of that. Because he also says, I want you therefore to become like me. You need people. The ministers that you need in your life are people who, yes, they have the deep empathy of entering into your experience and saying, I am going to become like you. I'm going to get really close to you and not judge you. I'm going to, I'm going to be really flexible about everything. You're going to do things that are going to drive me nuts. I'm a completely different. I would do it differently and I don't care because I love you and I'm going to get close to you, but I'm going to become like you, but I also am going to be able to challenge you. And you need people in your life, friends, Christians who can challenge you and say, you need to become like me. This thing is not negotiable. There's something in your life that's not right. There's a lie you're believing and I see it crushing you and distracting you and pulling you from God. I see the accuser all over you and I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to speak into your life because we need people who can do that. Um, you know, Tim Keller, one of his illustrations of this. He talks about the Birdwatchers Club. Have you heard about the, the Birdwatchers Club? Um, you know, if you, you join, let's say, you know, you've got some good income and you have, don't really have much going on on Saturdays and you're really into things that fly. And so you join, uh, you know, the Forest Park Birdwatchers Club and you, you know, get your expensive binoculars and every Saturday at, at 8 a.m. you gather with other people in the Birdwatchers Club and you go through Forest Park with your Birdwatchers Club glasses on and you're looking and you're pointing at different birds and you're writing down which birds are and where you see them, where you spot them, and you're looking them up in guidebooks. Oh, you probably have an app for that. And, and it's all about the Birdwatchers Club. and It's really great. And then some member of the Birdwatchers Club comes up and taps you on the shoulder. Uh, you know, that, that guy you're seeing, he's no good for you. You need to dump him. And you look at her and you think, excuse me, this is the Birdwatchers Club. And I'm here to watch birds. Church is not the Birdwatchers Club. Pick your church carefully. <laughs> who are the community group members who can speak into your life and say, she's no good for you? Who are the community group leaders, the deaconesses? The deacons, the elders, the pastors, the Christian friends, the, the mentors who you trust enough to speak into your life, who can tell you when you're right and can tell you when you're wrong, who, yes, they can defend you when you're under false attack, but they can also call you on the carpet if you're lying to them. You know, who are the women? Who are the men whose character is such that you would trust them to hear them out? Maybe when you don't want to hear what they have to say. Who can challenge you? Because Paul is modeling the ministers we need who have both the empathy and the challenge. You can say, I'm going to become just like you in order to reach you. And, and I'm also going to say, I want you to become like me in this because I think you've, you've, you've fallen off the boat. 
who can challenge you like that? You know, these are people who they're going to be able to do it because they're further along in the gospel than you are. You know, people who who aren't getting the gospel and they're living their life on a treadmill of of self-righteous effort in order to to get God to like them and get people to like them. Those are people who aren't going to be able to speak into your life like this, because if they're on that treadmill and they fail, then they're going to feel like like crap. They're just going to say, oh, I, I my life stinks. I'm a horrible person. And they're going to be able to show you empathy because they know what it's like to fail, but they're not going to be able to speak into their life because they're, they're just going to be filled with self-loathing. And yet, if they're on that treadmill and they're doing really well and they're having their daily quiet time and they're going to church and they're tithing and they're, 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 they're telling people about Jesus and all this kind of stuff, but they're still doing it because they're trying to get God to like them because they want to be one of the good people. And, and if they succeed, they're going to think, oh, I, can, I have a word for the Lord for you. I, I can speak into your life. I am an expert in this, but they're not going to be able empathetically to get down where you are and and sit with you in that and love you because they don't have that sense of brokenness. Only the gospel brings these two things together. Only the gospel brings the empathy that comes from having failed and the confidence that comes from being loved. Only with the gospel can you make a total wreck of your life and still be the victor. It's the only way. It's what Jesus does. Become like me, Paul says, as I became like you. And you're going to know these sorts of people because of their joy. This is the big change that Paul had noticed in the Galatians. You know, he had gone to them first and the joy was infectious when he brought them the gospel. They, they got the gospel. They knew Jesus had saved them. They were so filled with joy. And then he goes away and these other teachers come in with their self-righteous legalism, their, their self-help religion. And he comes back and he sees them and he's like, what happened? Where is your joy? He asks because it, it was robbed of them because that's what legalism does every single time. Uh, you know, joy, the infection goes both ways you know joy is infectious but when somebody comes and 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 they're a joy stealer you know how that often you've seen you've seen that in your workplace you've seen that in your family life you've seen that in your church you've seen that somewhere in your life somewhere around the water cooler that one employee who is so negative and they know how to do everybody's job and they will tell you how to do your job and they always have a criticism they always have a complaint they always have something they're whining about and you can watch that infection as the joylessness spreads throughout the workplace you understand why when employers fire people they they do it at four o'clock on a friday and there's a security guard with a big box and all your belongings and they're going to walk you to your car, they're not going to give you time to dump all your poison in the well because that's what joylessness does, but that's also what joy does. They had been robbed of it, and yet they had also seen the power and infection of of joy. It's what the gospel can do, and you're going to know by their joy, and you're going to also know them by their love. Compare these teachers in verse 17. Paul says, you know, All they want from you is to alienate you so that you can be zealous for them. These are teachers who are not loving. They are using followers in order to make them feel confident or religious or spiritual. Uh, Some of you in the helping professions, you've known this, you've seen this. Uh, they're, They're people who go get counseling degrees because God's calling them to be counselors. And there are people who go get counseling degrees because they really need counseling. There are people who go into ministry because they really feel called of God to invest in other people. And there are people who go into Christian ministry because they want to use people to make them feel special or like leaders or confident. And that's what he's calling out these leaders on. They're just using you, he's saying. They're not loving you for your sake, not getting down onto your level and sitting with you in that. The ministers you need, empathy and challenge. Become like me as I became like you. 
And yet Paul pushes beyond that because he's saying something more. He's also talking about the minister that you need to be yourself because all of you are called. If you're called to Christ, you're called to be ministers of the gospel to other people. His design is that that would happen in you. Um, The church is not a church of 300 people with three or four ministers up front who do the ministry. It's a church of 300 ministers. You are the ministers of God in this city. You are the ministers of God in this church. You do most of the pastoral care in your community groups, in your relationships, when you're getting together for coffee or a drink or lunch or whatever. That is where 99% of the ministry of this church happens because you are the ministers. I'm just, I'm just here to equip. And that's what I'm doing right now is I'm equipping you. I'm giving you resources. I'm, I'm helping direct you toward your calling because God has given you gifts. There are, there are some hands that only you can hold. And, and God takes the unique parts of your story, your victories and even your failures, your, 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 your challenges, the things that you, even the areas where you have blown it, he takes those unique parts of your story and he uses them to reach other people. Don't ever underestimate. Don't think, oh, because you've blown a marriage and, and, and that one walked away, that you therefore don't have a story to tell, that you don't therefore have something to invest in other people because God has claimed you and called you and equipped you and his spirit is in you to invest in other people as the church caring for one another and as the church turning outward face to your city to actually invest in your city the love and justice and grace and hope that we have in Christ. And when that gets a hold of you, you're going to realize it's cost. You know, you'll look at the language. It's really incredible language that Paul uses here when he describes his experience of ministering to the Christians in Galatia. Uh, He says in verse 19, verse 20, he says, my dear children. He's already thinking like a parent because when you invest in someone, you start feeling a burden for them. When you really love on someone, get close to them and pour your heart out for them and give them your heart, there is a cost to that. And you can hear it here. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now. Does that language sound a little bit weird coming from a guy? I am in the pains of childbirth. You know, every woman in these Galatian churches is thinking, Paul, you have no idea what you're talking about. But he says it, and it's inspired, so he gets to say it. I don't. Yeah, it's really weird language. I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's saying, I am in agony. You know, some of you know what it's like when you have kids. Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, one pastor talking about him and his wife, and, and their first child was rough. Uh, the responsibility was just overwhelming. You know, they were leaving the hospital to go home, and there's this kid, and the wife just looks at him and says, Honey, there's no one to give this kid to. I just want to go home. You know, but what also happened is that that child, that little boy, captured their heart. Uh, and when your parent... There's really no opportunity for you to be okay unless you know your kids are okay. Uh, some of you know that once you're a parent, you know, you're, if you, you've given, you've given your heart to your children and your heart will not be okay if your kids aren't okay. 
And that's what Paul is experiencing. He has given his heart to these Christians. He has invested in them, poured out his life, spent time with them, cared for them. And, 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 and if they're getting the gospel, it's great. And if they're not getting the gospel, he is in the pains of childbirth until they get the gospel, until Christ is formed in them. Uh, in First Thessalonians, Paul talks about how he's affectionately desirous of the Christians in Thessalonica. Um, he says at one point, uh, uh, Tim Keller actually references uh, this passage in First Thessalonians, where where Paul again brings out that parental heart of those he, he's investing in that he that he feels like a mother or a father toward them. Uh, he says at one point of the believers he's serving, he says, "Now we live." Because you stand firm in in the Lord. You hear that? This is an apostle of Jesus Christ who wrote 13 books of the Bible saying, now I live because you get the gospel. You know, think about the corollary to that. When Christians don't get the gospel, when they're not okay. If, if he's saying, I live because I see Christ in you. then when he doesn't see Christ in them, it means it kills him. He cannot live. Uh, it, it's, it's an incredible thing when you actually start living as a minister toward other people. When you actually start investing in them and getting close, close enough, it can break your heart. There's a cost because you give somebody your heart and it can break. Uh, I remember a guy who, gosh, 15 years ago or probably, uh, I took him under, under, under my wing, he was a new Christian. He was an out, he, he was an addict. He had a lot of problems, relational problems. Oh my gosh, he just was the kind of guy who should never have a girlfriend because his own story was such that he had been hurt early on in life. And he got to that point where he says, I'm, I'm just never going to let anybody get that close to hurt me again. And so anytime a girlfriend would start to move away from him, he would start getting really manipulative and controlling. And guys, that always wins her heart every single time. Uh, and and he would get really quite abusive. And I remember he, at one point, he, he was so depressed, he, he attempted suicide and failed. And then uh, there was a second time when he attempted suicide. And I remember sitting all night at his side in, in the emergency room. Um, and uh, And he had told me that, you know, as soon as he got out, he was going to kill himself. He'd lie to the nurses. And, and then once he got out, he'd, he'd kill himself. And, and uh, I, I told the nurses that, and he overheard me. And uh, he threw me out and didn't talk to me for a year after that. Now, I had been meeting with this guy every week, sometimes twice a week. I had been through two suicide attempts with him. You know, I had given him my heart as a pastor. And it was really painful. It, it was really awful. Uh, because when you get close enough to people that you give them your heart because you love them and you invest in them and you care for them, there's a risk because it can hurt C.S. Lewis says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Jesus is saying, I want you to become like Paul. I want you to get close enough that your heart can get ripped out. 
I want you to invest in your fellow Christians, pouring your life into them, getting that close, letting them close enough to see your issues, your addictions, your failings, your bad relationships, your foul mouth, your messed up ways of thinking, letting them get that close and and you getting that close to them to show them Jesus and to give them your heart to share not only the gospel, the Bible says, but our very lives with you. It's costly. We see here the minister that you need who can both show you the empathy but also the challenge. All sorts of them. You need a lot of them. And you see the minister that you are called to be and what that costs. So how can you pay that cost if it's going to break your heart? Friends, you can pay it because of the minister that you already have and his name is Jesus. Paul says in verse 19 that the goal of everything he does is to see Christ formed in us. Jesus is the one who gave his heart to you. Jesus is the one in Hebrews chapter 7 says Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. Do you hear that? He always lives to do this. That means he wakes up in the morning to intercede for you. He goes to bed at night, if he goes to bed at night, in order to intercede for you. Everything Jesus does, every word, every thought, every action is oriented towards your blessing, that God would shine his face upon you, that he'd turn his countenance towards you and give you his peace, that you would be effective, that you would be healed, that you would be transformed. He's always living for that sake, for your sake. It means he's given his heart to you. It's the ministry you have in Jesus. John 17, Jesus said the same thing. He said in his high priestly prayer to the Father, the longest prayer recorded in the Bible, Jesus says, for them, Father, I sanctify myself. For them, I set myself apart for your benefit, for your sake. Jesus, not only dying for you here, but he says he's living for you. You think about what it's like when somebody trains for a marathon, how they set themselves apart. They sanctify themselves. They're consecrated for that purpose. And so everything they eat is oriented toward that marathon. Everything they sleep, everything they drink, all how they measure out their day all of their, their continual ritual is, is geared towards that marathon. And that is what Jesus says he is for you. That your benefit and your blessing is what he lives for. He says, for them, I sanctify myself. I am committed. I am set apart in order to bless my people. He's saying he lives for you. He's given his heart to you. And giving his heart for you would ultimately mean that that heart would be killed. When you give your heart away to somebody, that gives them the ability to kill you. And for Jesus, this death was quite literal. He is the minister you already have. If you have Jesus, you have a minister who became like you in every way so that you could become like him in that mission. It's the miracle of the incarnation of God that the eternal God who holds all the stars in his hand would step down into this fallen and broken reality in order to become like it in order to become a part of the creation, in order to become like you because he loves you. People say Christianity is all about living for Jesus. That's hogwash. Jesus says Christianity is all about his dying and his living for you. And even more so, the love that he has for you right now. Jesus, the true minister, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. I had a story to tell you. It's true. 
I try to say true things. It was back in 1972 that a young Egyptian businessman named Farahat lost a watch that was valued at 11,000 U.S. dollars, and that's in 1972 dollars, which is probably like 50 million dollars today. Inflation. And he was stunned weeks later when a garbage man dressed in filthy rags, stunk, reeking, came up to his door and handed him his $11,000 watch. You know, in Egypt, there are cities of garbage, villages of garbage surrounding the major cities, in this case, Cairo. And in those garbage encampments live the poor, often Christians, the poorest of the poor in Egyptian society, whose lifestyle is living amidst the rubbish and sewage and scavenging through it, looking for something that they could eat or something that they could trade in order to gain food. Farahat asked this garbage man why he didn't just keep the watch or sell it himself. And the garbage man replied, My Jesus told me to be honest until I die. And Farahat later told a news reporter, said, I didn't know his Jesus at that time, but I told him that I saw Jesus in him. And I told him, because of what you have done and your great example, I will worship this Jesus that you worship. Farahat studied the Gospels. He grew in his faith. Two years later, he visited the garbage man's village outside of Cairo where he saw something he had never seen before. There were between 15 and 30,000 people living in abject poverty and squalor. There was no electricity. There was no running water. There was no sanitation. There was a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, and a lot of violence. Men, women, and children sifted through these huge mountains of trash looking for something of value that they could use or trade or eat. Farahat found himself reflecting on the words of Jesus. He stood there in the midst of this pigsty watching it, and he heard the words of Jesus saying, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he also remembered the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, We have become the scum of the earth, the dregs of all things. It was soon thereafter that Farahat and his wife began ministering to people's spiritual and material needs right there in the garbage village. They preached the gospel, and thousands of people in that village became Christians. In 1978, Farahat was ordained by the Coptic Orthodox Church and became known as Father Sama'an. And now about 4,000 believers meet every week in a large cave outside the village. We've got a photo of that, of that. This cave in the garbage village is the largest church of believers in the entire Middle East. Time magazine did an article on this church a few years ago at a time of great political uncertainty in Egypt, the call went out to the garbage Christians to gather and pray. And that week, 40,000 Christians cried out to Jesus inside that cave church in the midst of the fields of garbage. Muslims have been bringing their sick to these Christians and asking them to pray over them. The Muslims are bringing their mentally ill and the demonized into this church, in this village of trash, in order to ask the poor, marginalized Christians there to pray over them. They're too ashamed to tell their fellow Muslims where they've gone, but they only know that somebody who was sick is now healed. 
the, the, the word, it still travels, that it's safe to go to the garbage Christians, that the trash Christians, the Jesus trash people, you can find them and they're safe and they won't hate you and they will pray over you. And Jesus is there in their midst and he heals. You see, Farahat was ministered to by a trash Christian who found his $11,000 watch and went into the city with all of his filth and all of his shame, people pulling aside because he reeks. And he went to him and he ministered to him and he said, this is your watch. And it so impacted him that he saw Jesus. He saw the gospel. It captured his heart. He had been ministered to and he then began ministering to others. And that's because the one in this dominant Muslim-majority country that all the Muslims are hearing about from a marginalized religious minority and economic minority, the one they're hearing about is the true minister. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love that we have in Jesus, your son. Thank you, Lord, that he is the true minister who lays down his life for big, shameful sinners like me, like us. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel that we have been loved, that we can make a total wreck of our lives and yet still be the victors because we're clothed in the righteousness and the honor of Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you for loving us, for being our dad and being wild about us. Father, we worship you and we consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you might capture our hearts with the gospel, that we might then give our hearts away to others. We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.